Packers Daily with Jason Mertides. All righty, welcome to your November 18th, Wednesday, November 18th edition of Flyers Daily with Jason Mertides. Special episode here today because we are going to kick off Flyers Hall of Fame week. Now, there are 25 members in the Flyers Hall of Fame. I'm not talking about the NHL Hall of Fame. I'm talking about the Flyers Hall of Fame. The last inductee, as a matter of fact, into the Flyers Hall of Fame was none other than Jimmy Watson back in 2016. Our guest in Friday's episode was the second-to-last guy inducted into the Flyers Hall of Fame in 2015. He is the current coach of the Carolina Panthers, Rod Brindamore. He'll be our guest on Friday's episode of Flyers Hall of Fame Week, and we'll talk to Dave Poulin, number 20, who got into the Flyers Hall of Fame back in 2004, played for the Orange and Black from 1983 to 1990. And we'll hear from Dave along with Bill Meltzer coming up in just a couple of minutes. Uh, We're going to get to a lot of great players in Flyers Hall of Fame this week. Uh, Who are they going to be? You're going to have to stay tuned and find out as we lock them in. And uh, some great conversations, great opportunity to talk to some of the great players in the history of the Philadelphia Flyers. 25 players in total in the Flyers Hall of Fame. Started out with Bob Clark as the inaugural member back in 1988, along with Bernie Perrant. Keith Allen uh, was a head coach in the NHL, also a general manager. Keith the Thief uh, and an executive VP all the way up until 2014. He was a 1989 induction along with Bill Barber and Ed Snyder. In 1990, Rick McLeish and Fred Shiro were inducted into the Flyers Hall of Fame. Barry Ashby in 1991, also Gary Dornhofer in 91. Gene Hart uh, in 92, along with Reggie Leach in the 1993, it was Joe Scott, who was a minority owner of the uh, Flyers, uh, also a president and chairman of the Board Emeritus uh, with the team for a long time. He was inducted as well in 1993, along with Ed Van Emp, Tim Kerr in 1994, then a couple-year break before Joe Watson went in in 1996. Brian Propp goes in in 99. The great Mark Howe goes in in 2001. Dave Poulin, our guest on this episode in 2004. Ron Hextall in 2008 and Dave Schultz in 2009. Then John LeClaire and Eric Lindros go in together in 2014. Of course, their careers are attached in so many ways. Eric Desjardins in 2015. Rod Brindamore, Friday's guest uh, in 2015. And then in 2016, it was Jimmy Watson. So two Watson brothers in the Flyers Hall of Fame. But without further ado, let's bring in Bill Meltzer and our conversation with our first Flyers Hall of Fame member, Dave Poole. Uh, Joining us right now on Flyers Daily as we start our Hall of Fame week. And wow, one of the great leaders in Flyers history, uh, part of some of the really great teams that went to Stanley Cup Finals. Dave Poolin joins us, the captain from Notre Dame right now on Flyers Daily. Dave, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you. You know, for the first probably three months of the pandemic when people asked me how I was doing my standard answer was I don't know because I didn't know but it's amazing what we've been through in the last excuse me now seven months I guess or eight months and what we've all gone through and the different you know ups and downs and ebbs and flows and everything else that we've managed to navigate and we continue we're not out of it yet but uh, but overall as well as well is, I'm doing great. Thank you. Well, we're taping this on March 278th, so enjoy the day. Wow. Doesn't it feel like that? <laughs> no question about it. I I was working that day, so I was scheduled to go to Chicago to do an Ottawa game. I was going back-to-back Chicago and St. Louis, and so I had worked you – no, know, Wednesday – yeah, Wednesday night I had worked, 
and that was the Rudy Gobert night. Yep. And so they called us into the studio on uh, on Thursday morning, and they said, "Look, I went live at the podium with Gino Retta that morning, and then they pulled me over to the panel, and we had James Duffy and Darren Drager and myself on the panel, and Pierre LeBrun, and we were on for seven straight hours on March third." March 12th, rather, Thursday, March 12th, as we tried to figure out what was going on, you know, what was being canceled, what wasn't being canceled. And uh, yeah, and, and it, it does proverbial Groundhog Day. We just keep going. We're still yeah. there today. So, Paul, you took an unconventional route. We're doing we're doing Flyers Hall of Fame week and we're right. looking at guys that really impacted this organization in a big way. And you took such an unconventional route to the NHL. I don't know if you know if it was in your plans or when you thought it was realistic, but you play the four years at Notre Dame, you go undrafted, and then somehow you come up with this opportunity playing over in Sweden, then you end up with the main Mariners. And then all of a sudden you got this illustrious NHL career. Um, was it all on the cards? Did you know that this was a possibility? Tell us about how your Flyers life began. I absolutely did not know it was a possibility. And, and even after I started playing for the Flyers, I didn't think it was a possibility. <laughs> that's, how, that's how unreal it was. And I've just started writing a little bit about, you know, on my own about it. Uh, it's a crazy, crazy story. And I, I guess the theme is expect the unexpected. And, you know, when you have an opportunity, make the most of it. I mean, it's as simple as that. And, and, and I tell people, that the most important skill I had as a hockey player was the ability to keep going. And whatever happened, I just kept going. And so taking you back through that, you know, I was really, really small growing up. And, you know, I was one of the smallest players in the Toronto Hockey League. And, and I didn't even start playing organized hockey till I was nine years old. I was a figure skater till then. So I start playing, I'm a tiny little guy. And, and while I'm a tiny little guy going through peewee and minor bantam the philadelphia flyers and the boston bruins are in their mid-70s and they're beating everybody up and they're big and they're bad and you know they're the broad street bullies and the big bad bruins and and i would try out for a team and you know be the last one to make it because i was too small i'd lead the team in scoring and then the next year they tell me well we know you led the league in scoring but you're not big enough now you know well i was big enough last year but i'm not big enough now so that trend continued throughout. And then I had a late growth spurt. <clears throat> and it's a, a, an often told story, but one that's kind of funny. Um, I was playing tier two junior and the kid beside me got a letter to Notre Dame. And it had the big gold ND in the corner and it was sitting on his stall in the locker room um, for the Dixie Beehives tier two junior team. And I said, Billy, are you gonna use that? And he said, no, no, I'm going to Michigan State. So I said, can I have the letter? And he said, sure. So I took the letter and filled out the information sheet and sent it back to Notre Dame and, you know, immediately got a response. And, you know, my letter was, thank you for interest in me as a hockey player. They had no idea who I was. <laughs> and, uh, and that started the recruiting process. And back then late seventies recruiting was all by word of mouth. And so when the school started calling, they'd say, you know, who were you talking to? Well, I was talking to Notre Dame. I mean, they maybe weren't talking to me yet, but um, that snowballed. And all of a sudden I had, all the Ivies involved. I had, uh, you know, Michigan, Michigan State. I had just a great, you know, sheet of hockey schools that I could choose from. And I went to Notre Dame first. 
and called home in the morning, raised by a single father predominantly early in my life and called home and said, I'm not even gonna take my other recruiting trips. I mean, this is, this is a magical place and, and they're gonna give me a full scholarship and I'm gonna come here. And, and I did, I didn't take any other trips. I went to Notre Dame first and I often think of what would have happened because my final schools were uh, Cornell, Clarkson, Boston University, Michigan, Michigan State, and Notre Dame. And so you often think first, you know, what if you had gone to BU and seen the rink and, you know, seen Cornell and, and you know, had the opportunity to go into Yost Ice Arena in Michigan. But that wasn't what it was about because I, I really had no thoughts of playing pro guys. I was just going to go and get a great education. And even through my Notre Dame tenure, I had a great rookie year and freshman year rather, and then got real sick my sophomore year, sat back there, didn't play a, a lot my junior and sophomore years. Um, and then had a great senior year, but I was set to go to work for Procter and Gamble. And, uh, the call came in June after my senior year from Ted Sater, who went on to coach in the NHL. At that point he was coaching in Sweden. And he said, look, you know, we hear you're not going to try and play over there. Would you be interested in coming to Europe? So I talked to P and G and they said, yeah, we want you for international sales, go and play hockey for a year, you know, internationally. And, and when I got to Sweden, it was a different it was a different whole scenario for me. Ted Sater was scouting for the Flyers at the time. He had been at the training camp in 82. And he grabbed me pretty much right away. And I was his project. I was going to be the player that he turned into a National Hockey League player. And I was, you know, he just focused on me so much and pushing me and not letting me take any shortcuts. And it just took my game to a different level. And so coming back in late February, I reported to the Maine Mariners. I walked into that rink in Portland, Maine. They were a really, really good team. Uh, you know, my they picked me up at the airport. I, I had no sticks. I had a bag of equipment. And they're like, where are your sticks? I said, well, I, don't, I don't have any sticks. Sweden. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, playing for Tom McVie there, and it was a pretty veteran team, but a really good team. Had some great young players on it. And, and just felt comfortable and, and tore it up in my second game in Hershey, um, the second line center got hurt. And so I was bumped up to second line center. And, uh, and by the way, my first two pro wingers, and you'll have to look at the numbers on one of them. You'll know the numbers on the other one. My first American hockey league game was in new Haven, Connecticut on a Friday night. I had Dave Brown on the right side and Mel Hewitt on the left side. Now you'll have to look at Mel Hewitt's numbers because he had 500 plus minutes and penalties in the eye one year. So these are my two wingers. You, you think I had lots of room? You think I had lots of room out there? And you know, and then the Flyers were poised to play. I played 16 games in Portland, and I'd say the last seven or eight games, I was the best player on the ice every night. I was the first star, I think, five times in my last seven or eight games. Still hadn't signed a contract. It was an amateur tryout offer. And I remember Bob McCammon came down to see me play in Adirondack and I played really well. <clears throat> Talked to him briefly after the game. And, you know, I didn't even realize who he was. He was the head coach at the time of the Philadelphia Flyers and not the GM. Keith Allen was still the GM. And guys, I was in Duffy's Pancake House, which was a famous eating establishment in Portland on a Friday morning, April 1st, April Fool's Day. And Duffy answers the phone and there's a bunch of us, you know, getting ready to get on the bus to go to New Haven to play what would be my 16th American Hockey League game. And Duffy gets a funny look in his face. He says, Dave, it's Keith Allen. I'm like, yeah, it's April Fool's Day. And he said, no, 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 it's, it's, it's Mr. Allen. 
So even when I answered the phone, I'm like, yeah, you know, who is this? And he goes, Dave, it's Keith Allen. You're going to play tomorrow night in Toronto. And it was just, it was a whirlwind. Yeah. Maple Leaf (laughs) Gardens where I'd watched games my whole life. And, and, but understand I hadn't been to a training camp. I didn't know one single player on the team, not one. And he said, but we want you to play in New Haven tonight. So I bust from Portland down to New Haven. I don't know, four, four and a half hours. And, played that night and believe me guys i was not going to get hit i was not going to go into a corner i was going to the nhl the next morning got up first thing took a limo to LaGuardia, flew to toronto bag over my shoulders sticks walked into maple leaf gardens a little afternoon walked in the front door didn't know there was a player's entrance you know with my bag and saying to a security guard you know where the visiting locker room is and he's looking at me like who are you and uh Walked in a locker room. I'll never forget walking in and seeing Bobby Clark. I knew who he was. And they were all going the other way because they'd finished their morning skate. And um, I was going to play in the NHL. By the time I got back to the hotel for the pregame meal, most of the team was gone. And all of a sudden, Daryl Sittler wheeled in. And Sittler had been one of my boyhood heroes. And he, of course, was playing for the Flyers at the time. And, you know, I quietly had my pregame meal. And went up to my room. My roommate was, you know, the great Bunny LaRock, Michelle Bunny LaRock, who we've lost far too early. He didn't even come back to the room in the afternoon. So I have no idea where he was. And I'm alone, sitting in a room thinking I'm playing in the NHL tonight. And it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. And I remember, you know, going out for the warm-up and seeing some familiar faces behind the glass. And, you know, they're looking at me like, what are you doing here? a professor a teacher from my high school kevin doran was standing at the glass saying you're in the nhl you gotta be kidding me and uh and then the first shift of the game we were the flyers so we took a penalty and bob mccammon said well okay let's see if you can play go kill the penalty and i jumped over the boards and had 20 seconds came back and my second shift was with daryl sittler and Sittler pulled up inside the blue line and threw it across. And I went top shelf just under the bar on Mike Palmatier for my first career goal and scored a shorthanded goal in the, in the second period and was on my way. It was, you know, a whirlwind, a dream come true. It was crazy. It's a crazy story. Movie. Um, yeah. You know what? It's crazy. It really is. And, and, and then even like getting on the bus after the game, where do you sit? You know, you're getting on a plane to fly home. We were playing the Islanders the next night. Where do I sit? I don't even know where to go. I had no idea. So, it, you know, it's it's so many great memories as I reflect back on it. You know, you go a long time without thinking about these things, guys. So to share them with you, you know, is fun for me as well. Bob Clark obviously went from your, your teammate to your general manager. And, you know, Clarky was the face of the Flyers for so long. And, you know, was the quintessential captain, not just for the Flyers, but but around the league. And, you know, you succeeded him as captain with Keenan coming in. I mean, can you talk a little bit about, you know, your relationship with Bob and, and how it changed from, from teammate to GM and, you know, getting, re- getting ready for the responsibility that was handed to you? Yeah, very complex, Bill, very complex. Um, you know, uh, it started with a 1983 Toyota Celica Supra. That's how it started. So I finished the year and led the team in scoring during the playoffs. We get upset by the Rangers and they're going to send me back to the minors, but I'd signed a pro contract that week and they couldn't send me down because I'd signed my first contract after a certain date. 
So instead of going back to Portland, Maine, I was going home, but I had no idea. I mean, I picture my last year, I'd gotten married, um, graduated from college, spent the year in Europe, 16 games in Portland, Maine. Now I was in Philadelphia. So my wife was with me. I said, I, I don't even like, I don't even know where to turn. So I said, I got to buy a car. And one of the guys in Portland, um, Tara Satinsky had bought this beautiful 1983 Toyota Supra. So I'm like, that's the car I want to buy. So I called somebody in the flyer's office on the Monday and said, Hey, can somebody help me? Can somebody help me buy a car? And whoever I was talking to in the flyer's office said, yeah, yeah I think Bob Clark's got a, a deal with a dealership or something. So I'm like, okay, I've played five games with this guy. I'm going to actually call Bob Clark. Is he even going to know who I am? <laughs> and so they gave me the number and I called them and he said, yeah, I'll meet you tomorrow night at the dealership. So I walked into the dealership, Clarky was there and he said to the dealer, um, give this kid whatever he wants, turn the card over. He's going to pay wholesale. Um, don't worry about a signature on a bank loan or whatever. He's good for it. And, um, and then he said to me, what are you doing this summer? I said, you know, I want to say, Mr. Clark, I said, Bob, I have no idea. I said, you know, the last year has been a whirlwind for me. He said, stay here and work out this summer. He said, work out with me. And I was like, seriously? And he said, yeah, sublet one of the guy's apartments. I'm going to give you the real estate guy's name. You sublet one of the player's apartments. You stay here this summer and you be my workout partner. Now, what had Bob Clark seen in five games in two weeks to offer that to me? I have no idea, none whatsoever. And so we sublet Lindsay Carson's apartment. And my wife went to work immediately. She had graduated a couple of years before me and she'd been in the hotel industry. So she found a local hotel and went to work immediately. And we only had one car. And so Bob's workouts were at seven in the morning, six days a week at Corey's gym in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. So she would drop me off at quarter to seven and then she'd start her day and go to work. And so finally, Clarkie said, do you only have one car? And I said, well, I have the car I have because you helped me buy it. <laughs> and he said, okay, I'll pick you up in the morning. So I'm like, oh, so I've got Bob Clark swinging by in the morning. So I'd look out at 6.30 and his little convertible would be sitting out in front of the condo and I'd say, oh God, I got to get up earlier. And then I'd look out at 20 after six and it'd be sitting out there. And finally I said to him one day, I don't know what time you get here, but we work out at seven. I'm going to come out of the apartment at 6.30. So you get here whatever time you want to. <laughs> and that was the start of a great great mentorship relationship here i am working out with a you know nhl mvp legendary captain legendary leader six days a week and he said to me look if you're going to be my workout partner six days a week you have to be at every one seven in the morning and he said i don't care if you've been up till five in the morning you're going to be my workout partner that's what you're going to do and i did and it was that summer that made me believe I could play in the National Hockey League. And, and if you look back, guys, it, it's pretty clear he was looking for someone to push him through his last couple of years. He found someone who would finally go to the gym with him at seven in the morning and make the commitment because no one would do it. <clears throat> he was so far ahead of his time in what he was doing from a physical conditioning standpoint. So when I went to my first full training camp, I was a 24-year-old version of a 36-year-old maniac. And, you know, he was so far ahead of his time in, in every aspect of that first camp, Pat Croce had come on the scene. So we were, you know, the cutting edge of what we were doing physically. And um, I was at the top of every list, the two mile run, the bench presses, the 
you know, everything we did, I was once again, a 24 year old version of the best conditioned guy on the team. Well, you just happened to put up 76 <laughs> points that year too. So that, that, that was, that, that was the blueprint <laughs> in 73 games. So not bad way to break in. Right. Uh, so Dave, fast ask- forward to the end of that year, yeah. and I'll just take you into the transition. Um, we were going on a sailing trip to the British Virgin Islands uh, with Clark and his wife and another couple. And, you know, we'd had a very disappointing end of the year. We'd been swept by Washington in the playoffs. And Clarky took my wife and I to the end of the dock. Um, the first day we flew into uh, Tortola. And he said to me, I'm going to retire when we get home. And I just looked at him. I'm like, seriously? He said, yeah, I'm going to be the new general manager and vice president. So now we're going to spend 10 or 12 days on the water. I'm a rookie in the NHL. I'm with the general manager and vice president of the team. And, and it was really fascinating. And so, you know, we had a unique relationship. We had roomed together that first year after Paul Holman got traded. Clark and I roomed together for the entire year. And he shared everything with me. And that was, was so instrumental in terms of a mentorship. I think often of being a mentor, and I've been able to mentor some other guys, and why he chose to do it, why me, all of the above, undrafted, you know, we had other guys in the team, Ronnie Sutter was taken fourth overall in the draft, you know, we had other big time prospects and first round picks, and, and it was me, and so that sailing trip, I'll never forget the first question, so we decided that we'd have a press conference every day, so at three o'clock, we'd set anchor, Clarky would sit on one side and the five of us would sit on the other side and we'd have mock press conferences for his first ever <laughs> press conference as general manager. And, and my wife asked the first question and, and she said, so, you know, congratulations, Bob Clark. What makes you think you're qualified to run an NHL team? You've got no formal education. You've got no experience. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, well, wait a second. This is the boss here. You can't say that. Philadelphia and media, she had first, it down. <laughs> it was the first question at the press conference. She asked it every day for 10 days. And it was the first question at the press conference. Wow, so, that's great insight. Yeah, so, so obviously our relationship changed, but we remained good friends while we were, you know, we had a, a unique manager-player relationship. And then he wedged a highly, highly mercurial coach in between us yeah in Mike Keenan and yet Keenan knew that Clark and I were very close so it was a very very interesting dynamic well let's talk about that because in your tenure as the as the captain Bill alluded to it uh first you're seceding a a legend in Bob Clark who we all know has meant everything to the organization and was the identity Uh, couple that with the fact that he's now your GM uh he's running the team and he brings in this hotshot Mike Keenan. We know Mike Keenan could be crazy as an NHL coach, but I imagine in his first run, he was real crazy. And especially because he knew he had some talent and he could do something. Um, talk about what, what that's like dealing with Iron Mike at that time, because uh, he, he could be a bit of a tyrant. I don't, I honestly don't know whether he knew he had talent. And you think of that first team, I mean, you know, we had 19-year-old Peter Zezel, 19-year-old Derek Smith, 20-year-old Rick Talk, a 20-year-old Murray Craven, who we traded for, 20-year-old Ron Sutter. Like, start to do the math. There's 25% of your team, and I haven't named a 21-year-old yet. Um, we were so young, and it was going to change so much. And you'd say now, well, well yeah, Rick Talkett, I mean, Murray Craven, you know, Ron yeah. Sutter. Well, 
They weren't at that point. Yeah. Talk was a six round pick. <laughs> exactly. And, and Keenan was, you know, the, the whole captaincy thing happened around the preseason luncheon. And, you know, I had no, no indication or no thoughts of the captaincy at all. And, uh, we went to the luncheon thinking Daryl Sittler was going to be named captain. And it had been a really, really arduous training camp. Keenan had really pushed us to a different level than Bob McCammon had the year before, which was my only reference point. And we went to the luncheon thinking Keenan was going to be named. And partway through the luncheon, someone came up to the head table and said something to Bob Clark. And Sittler wasn't named captain. And we took the bus back out to Voorhees to the um, Coliseum. And I went home. And at that point now, you know, they called Daryl Settler and told me he'd been traded to Detroit. And it was later that day, about 6 p.m., they called me back to the Coliseum. And I went in and Mike Keenan said, you're going to be our captain. I played one year in the league, guys. It was like, like, seriously? Like, you got to be kidding me. And, you know, so it was something that, heavily influenced by Bob Clark. There's no question about it, but that, you know, he was going to put his stamp on the team in his own way. And Mike Keenan had never coached in the NHL. Mike Keenan didn't know me from Adam, no idea. And, you know, all of a sudden I was the captain and, and uh, it was a start of quite a relationship between Mike and I. <clears throat> and once again, he knew the Bob Clark factor and complicated triangle that went through a lot of different things together. I learned from each other, I think. And, um, you know, it's funny years later because his next captain, I believe, was Dirk Graham in Chicago. And it started right then where Dirk Graham would grab me on the road somewhere and say, I'm so sick of hearing about Dave Poulin. You know, all I ever hear, Dave Poulin would never let that happen in his locker room. <laughs> and then each sub subsequent captain would find me somewhere, whoever he was coaching and say, Oh my God, I'm so sick of hearing your name. And then they were sick of hearing Dirk Graham's name. And then they were, you know, I mean, it was like, well, that's what Mike did, you know, for Mike, he had coached in Rochester in the American league and Yvonne Lambert, the former Canadian was his captain. So that was his target for me. He would say to me, Yvonne Lambert would never let that happen in his locker room. And so, um, but I learned a lot from him and, uh, he got a lot out of that group of guys for the next four years, a tremendous amount. No question about it. You guys had that magical run, you know, best record in the league, youngest team in the league, as you were alluding to, you know, it was best record in the league during the regular season, get all the way to the finals. It was a, it was a five game series, but really, you know, really it was a lot more competitive than that, except for the, the final game of the series, which was played without Pelly. And that, that run just continued through, you know, reaching the, another cup final in, in, in 87, but you guys, you know, it, it was Fred Shiro who, who, who authored the, uh, when, when today will walk together forever. And you guys came mm -hmm. as close as you could you know, possibly come without actually winning a cup, but the bond that you guys have, you know, and, and I would think that it was going through the experience with losing Pally and, you know, and, and uh, the emotional drain that that was, you know, the, the rest of that year in, into when Hexy, you know, when Hexy stepped up as, as a rookie that year and, and lo and behold, you know, he wins the Conn Smythe Trophy, wins, wins the Vezina. I, I know it's hard to articulate, particularly in a, in a segment of an interview, but I mean, how would you, how would 
how would you describe the bond that you established as a hockey team, both both on the ice and also off as, as human beings? You know, having been through all having been through all that you went through, but you know, over losing Pelly and and, and Hexy and the you know basically bonding together, being being a united front with and with and against Mike. You know, and uh, you know that that three year period had to have been you know as as you look back at it, a pretty uh, a pretty extraordinary couple of years. I mean, it's something that I think you can look back in hindsight at, but but can you articulate at all what it was like going through all of that as a group? Yeah, it, it was, you know, those four years that, that, you know, from the start of 84, 85 until the end of uh, 87, 88. And you think of what we went through. That was Mike's goal was to drive us together. And, and, and if it meant he was the, you know, the recipient of the wrath, then that was fine with him. And that's what he wanted. He wanted to push us so that we were always together. And, you know, lifelong friendships, guys. I mean, really lifelong friendships that are unique. And it's people you don't see real often because of our various lives. I mean, we're all over North America or Europe. And you don't see guys. But when you do see them, the bond is instantly there. And I can tell you how many times I've heard in a press box you know, I'll be talking to Mark Howard, you know, whomever in the press box, Dave Brown or, you know, anybody. And I'll hear, oh, the old flyers. But there's an envious way they say it because a lot of organizations never had it. And guys, this goes to Mr. Snyder. I mean, it just does. It, it, the fabric of that organization and the challenge now is to continue it. You know, um, Clarkey is still there. And, and Clarkey is the next name you mentioned after Mr. Snyder, but it's Mr. Snyder. It's the uniqueness of having a one owner franchise for 46 years. And, you know, and, and he came and went during that time. I know that. I mean, he came and went and there were parts when he was very involved and parts when he wasn't, but he was always there. And, and that most people will tell you that the Flyers are the closest to being an original six team that there is. It just is. And obviously winning, you know, in 73, 74 and 74, 75 was part of it, but also the uniqueness of having an identity from, and I will call it year two, because, you know, the famous story is that the Flyers got beat up in the playoffs in the first year by St. Louis. And Mr. Snyder said that will never happen again, but imagine having an identity that can go that long, that putting the orange and black on it to this day, guys, I'll run into guys. I ran into Stevie Larmer a couple of years ago at a, at a golf outing. And he reflected on the first time they drove into the Philadelphia spectrum as a Chicago Blackhawk. It was his rookie year. And he said, I stood up to get off the bus. I didn't think anybody was coming with me. I was like, well, seriously, we're in the NHL now. Like, and guys were like, ah, you don't understand what it's like to go into this building. And, and it was, it was unique and it was unique to be a part of it. And the way it was structured, the ingredients that went in and out of it and, People to this day will say, well, you were the captain of the Flyers? And, and then they'll say, were you tough? And I'll say, I have no idea. Tough enough. <laughs> I didn't have to be. I didn't have to be. You know, because the elements were always there. And, you know, the characters. And, and I do have great friends from that team, Bill. And, and I will always have great friends from that team. And, you know, keep in touch with guys. And there's a magic to what we went through together. By far, by far, the bonding experience of Pelly was so... I mean, it was incredible. It was incredible. And I thought about it a lot, obviously, on, 
you know, the day of the accident was just a couple of days ago. And, uh, and I posted about it. And when I posted, you know, I, on Twitter, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reposts and likes from former teammates, from people in the Philadelphia area, from people that wanted to share where they were when they heard it 35 years ago. That's stunning that it's 35 years ago. Stunning. And, you know, even what Bob Clark and Mike Keenan and I went through through that process, um, you know, was so remarkable. It's a thought that's never left me for long. Certainly there are days when you don't think about it, but there are a lot of days when you do, guys. And, you know, and, and what you go through together in life, um, it, it was an amazing, amazingly challenging experience. It, it's incredible, too, because 35 years ago, that's insane to me. But Crazy. Obviously, you can see my backdrop, and there's a lot of goalie mass there, and Bernie's is front and center. Um, and as a kid who played the position, still do at this point at 48 years old for some stupid reason, but um, he was my favorite player. And I think I was 12 years old or 13 years old when, when the accident happened. And to me, it was the first time I had suffered loss of someone that I idolized. And it was so profound. I still have the newspaper articles that Al Morgani wrote when Pelly passed away. I remember weeping like a baby and it just, it, you always go back to what could have been eventually Hexy does come in and you guys go back to a cup final, but I want to ask you about two moments in particular, Dave, because there's signature moments in this franchise's history. One is 1985 in game six against Quebec. Mm -hmm. And I, mean, I can't see this highlight enough because you're on a five on three. Uh, you're the forward and you, and you intercept the pass in your zone, mind you on a five on three. You got the entire length of the ice. You're going in. I believe it was Mario Gosselin was the goaltender at that time. Yes. Um, and you go shelf, you go high glove on him. Take us through that moment with that. I mean, you're at home, you're at the spectrum that uh, looking at the highlight that the glass on the sides lower. So the fans are even more on top of you. What's that moment? Like as a player to do that in that spot, because scoring on a five on three, not very common. Yeah. Really incredible. Jason, when you, it's the, it's the moment I get asked about the most by far. When I'm back in Philadelphia, I've got a daughter and son-in-law in Philadelphia. And by the way, a new granddaughter too that I haven't oh, been congrats. able to see yet. Yeah, so I can't wait to get down and see the lovely Miss Quinn. Um, and so I get asked about it to this day. It's the first thing people ask me or they'll tell me they were there. Or they'll tell me. And I actually, I'm not a collector. I'm simply not. Um, you know, I have, I have things, but I'm not a collector. And... I have a picture that someone took from the second balcony, if you can picture this, um, on the side, right about the top of the circles on the end I scored on. So it was the first row right on the balcony down. And it's the coolest picture because there's two people on the ice. Um, I think there's a trailing referee, but Mario Gosselin and I are alone on the ice. And I had broken two ribs. Well, I hadn't broken them. Mario Tremblay, or I'm sorry, um, Mario Merois happened to break them in game two. So in game two in Quebec, scoring a shorthanded goal with Murray Craven, I had broken two ribs. And I'd sat out games three and four, played in five, because we lost game four at home, played in five and we won. So now it's game six. So when I'm in my second game of getting nerve blocks before the games and, you know, now that's mid second period and 
I mean, it was it was scouting. It was EJ McGuire, another person we lost far too early, who who had talked about how you know on their penalty sequences they tended to cheat down low, and and Peter Stasny in particular tended to cheat down low, and and that we had to keep pressure as they caved in. We had to maintain the pressure at the top of the box because the box was getting closer to you, and you couldn't fall off that. You had to keep your pressure out. And so it was a pass across between Merrill and Stasny that I picked off, and it was the top of our circle. When you look the other way, you're halfway through a penalty kill and you look the other way, do you know how far that is to the other end? <laughs> it's like, I can't skate all the way down there. I'm exhausted. It's 170 you know, feet. All, I know I'm all banged up and I'm wearing a flat jacket. And, and Mario Gosselin had returned from the Olympics that year and, and talented young goaltender. And I can still, honestly, I was on that breakaway and I could hear Murray Craven's voice in my head saying, top shelf, top shelf, top shelf. I wasn't a very good shooter. I, I just flat out wasn't, right? I didn't have a great shot. And I'm thinking, oh my God, can I shoot it top shelf? Can I put it under the bar? And I made the decision really early and went in and fired it in. I remember circling in my, you know, I, I was one hand up when I scored and, and Mark Howe met me because he was faster than me anyway. Um, and there were only three of us to celebrate. I think Doug Crossman was the third one on the ice and, and, uh, there are only three of us to celebrate, you know, what was the biggest goal of my career individually without a question. And that put us up two nothing. It was one nothing at the time, but what it did was catapult us into the Stanley cup finals. So, you know, it, was it my biggest individual moment? Yes. But was it one of my biggest team moments? We were going to the Stanley cup finals guys. Like we were going to the Stanley cup finals and we scored a power play goal in the third period and Pelle was Pelle. And, uh, and, you know, I still get asked the question because I did, you know, no one knew you weren't supposed to raise the Prince of Wales trophy after that. And I, and I have a great picture of me holding the Prince of Wales trophy up because <clears throat> it was a time when you weren't, you know, now, now you're not supposed to touch it or you are supposed to touch it or whatever you're supposed to do, the jinx or whatever. But I, but I lifted it and, and all I could think about was we are going to the Stanley Cup final. So great individual moment, but I, I don't know. I thought it was a better team moment. Spoken like a true captain. Go ahead, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on one of our recent shows, Jason and I were talking about you know, uh, a franchise player, a generational player, those Flyers teams, and obviously Mark Howe was a, is a hall of famer and was a, was a special, special talent. And you had a, a lot of depth on that team, you know, Brian prop five-time all-star Tim Kerr scored 50 goals a bunch of times, you know, a couple of Vezina trophy winners, but in terms of hall of famers, how he's in um, mm -hmm. and you go up against the Oilers, you know, the two times, just, just hall of famer after hall of famer. Um, we, Where are they at, at, by the way? Are they at seven right now, Bill, with, from that group? I believe it's going in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so when you, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that the team, to some extent, with all the talent that you had and all the fantastic players, was still kind of greater than the sum of the parts. And, you know, you can you can look at the, the Flyers teams. You can look internationally. A lot of times, you know, Team Finland, that's another team that uh, mm -hmm. they just they just have a chemistry about them and a way that they play. Um, you know, uh, and Jason and I were talking about how, uh, how you know, fans, do, do they need that superstar player to to gravitate towards? And I said, you know, look, look at those Flyers teams of the 70s where they're, you know, your teams are regarded really, really basically along the same light as the, the 70s teams that did win the Cup. So, you know, 
when, when you when you look at it, I mean, could it have been another group? Did it did it have to be that particular group? When you talk to the talk to the guys of the Broad Street Bullies, it, it almost had to be that group of guys with the coach that they had. Yeah, the the difference they had more significant difference makers. I mean, you know, was Bernie Bernie and Pelly you'd put and say, okay, what's better than better? They they were both great. Um, although Pelly wasn't healthy during the finals that year, and uh, we didn't have Bob Clark. We did we didn't have you know a, a three time MVP. Like is is that crazy, guys? That Bobby Clark won three MVPs in the era that he played in when there was a guy who wore number four in Boston, like yeah, seriously, yeah, like it's ridiculous to think about. And so I honestly, if it's possible to say this think Bob Clark was underrated, like it's crazy to say. And yet for what the value he had, you know, Billy Barber, Rick McLeish, Reggie Leach, I think they had more star power. And they even had more of an identity than we did. We were an extension of their identity. We had really good players. Like Rick Tockett was a really, really good player, albeit young. And guys, if you look, um, there's, there's a fun exercise that, that says you can go to hockeyreference.com and go to that series and pull up the box scores from that series. Wayne Gretzky won games two through five. Like it's crazy to see his numbers from games two through five. It wasn't Glenn Anderson. It wasn't Mark Messi. It wasn't Yari Curry. It was Wayne Gretzky who made a decision, you know, the best player in the history of the game that he was going to win that series. And, you know, Hey, would it be great to have Mark Messi as your second line center? And quite flatteringly, I was the first line center on that team. And when I got traded to Boston for Kenny Linsman, the first question I got asked by the media was, will you be happy being a third line center? Because Ken Lindsman wasn't happy being a third line center. And I said, do I get to go at every third shift? And they looked at me and kind of laughed and said, <laughs> I said, I don't care what you call me because I was called the first line center and I wasn't one. And all I knew was if I was the first line center on a hockey team, we weren't good enough to win. The other team's second line center was Mark Massier. I mean, that's just, that's not being humble guys. That's just common sense. I mean, we weren't good enough to win. And, and, and yet in 87, we came that much closer to winning on the experience, on the brilliant goaltending of Ron Hextall. And on the fact that, you know, all those kids I talked about, Zezel and Tockett, Smith and Craven were all a year older. Ronnie Sutter were all a year older, or a couple of years older and a couple of years more experienced. But um, yeah, they were, we were an extension of the identity that I talked about earlier in this program. And uh, we didn't have the true superstar status that they had. It's, it's, it's incredible what they put on the ice. I mean, it just uh, getting guys into the hall of fame and last year's class to, to, to still trickling in at this point. And as you mentioned, seven guys in that uh, Edmonton core that ends up and end up in the hall of fame, including Glenn Anderson, obviously Messier and Gretzky. Uh, last thing for you, Dave, uh, when you look back all these years later, uh, you've remained in the game. You, you went the coaching route for a while to, to your alma mater and went to Notre Dame. Um, and now you're, you're covering the game for TSN. You've been doing it for such a long time and such a great job. When you look back 
and, and you kind of look at your flyer's life and what it's meant to you as a person and what it's given you and what the game is giving you, can you kind of encapsulate what the game means to you and what that part of playing for the flyers and, and those years, because like, as Bill alluded to, you know, dealing, succeeding by Bob Clark, dealing with Mike Keenan and that dynamic going through the Pelly situation um, you're in the prime of your career at that point, 25 to 28 years, 29 years old, how it shaped you as a person, what the game and what playing in Philadelphia has meant to you in your life and your, and your legacy, if you will. Well, a huge part of my identity, Jason, without a question. Um, you know, it's funny because I didn't, I, and I was very careful about this. I never used the word succeed Bobby Clark or, you know, stepped in his skates or whatever. I used the term followed Bobby Clark <laughs> because you didn't replace Bobby Clark as captain but even that was part of my identity you know and, and being known as a captain and a leader I wore letters in all three cities I played in which you know I took a great deal of pride in and, and there's actually a cool hockey card from a series in 92 uh, Boston Montreal series where I have the C on because uh, we were playing Montreal in the playoffs and, and Ray Bork was hurt. And so they gave me the C during that. It was the only time anybody wore the C other than Ray Bork during his entire career. Wow. And I have a great hockey card with that C on. So I took a great deal of pride in that leadership part. And, you know, it was, it was I coached for 10 years, guys. I, I was never a coach. I mean, flat out. I was asked to go back to Notre Dame. The program was in real a challenging position. I was asked to go back and rebuild the program. We were able to do that. We built a magnificent new facility they're one of the top programs in the ncaa over the last 15 years um, and i take a great deal of pride in that but i wasn't a coach i wasn't um it, it didn't it wasn't in my fabric being a player and and being a flyer is something that i will always have and you know i go back to philly i'm so happy i have one of my daughters there so i am able to get back on a regular basis and it, and it's funny how you're identified but once again Yes, you're identified as an individual, but more you're identified as a team. And people identified with those teams, whatever age you were, you were in junior high and high school, you know, when you were going through it and you were watching us play. And we were a big part of your life, like a big part. And, and that's cool, you know. And I'll tell you what I get comments on as much as anything. Being on the wall for the Goldbergs, having my picture up on the wall for the Goldbergs, I still to this day, I think it's been eight years. And the older brother went to college and took my picture with him and put it up in his college dorm. So, you know, it's so great. Uh, you're really proud. When I'm, when I'm recognized as a player, when someone recognized me, you know, I played three and a half years in Boston. I played two years in Washington. I had, you know, a, a really fun career at Notre Dame as a player and a coach. I'm a Philadelphia flyer. And I, and I say that with a great deal of pride. Wow. That's awesome. What does the game mean to you? Um, it's been a part of my life unexpectedly the whole way through. I've tried to leave it. Um, I've, I've gone into private industry on a couple of different occasions and the game keeps coming back to me in some, like I went into private industry in 2007 into the executive search industry. And, you know, and, and the, the firm had never ever done anything sports related. And sports came to me in the search business <laughs> and <laughs> followed me and I was doing huge sports searches. And it's crazy, 
It's crazy. And guys, you know, I, I say proudly, um, you know, I put the executive director of the NFLPA in place, wow. Demora Smith. Yeah. And, and, you know, in my time, in a brief two-year segue into the sports business, uh, of into the search business, rather. And so I've had some fascinating life experiences, but sports, and specifically hockey, kept coming back. It kept finding its way back. You know, when I was fired by the Maple Leafs, I was the vice president of hockey ops for five years. And Brendan Shannon came in and basically cleared out the whole group, and I was fired. And I was like, okay, what am I going to do now? And, you know, while I was a flyer, I had worked on Wall Street for six plus years for the old firm Drexel Burnham Lambert and then spun out and opened a broker dealer. So I kept trying to segue out of sports, but it wouldn't let me. And, you know, I had some opportunities uh, in 2014 to get right back into the management side. And I said, no, nah, I'm just going to breathe a little bit. And, and then I found broadcasting and, and I have a very eclectic broadcasting portfolio now i'm in six or seven different silos that include radio you know programs sports center um, i do color on montreal i do panels for leaf games and those are two very very different jobs so i'm living in about six or seven different worlds all related to hockey all tied in um, it becomes your identity and and it'll always be my identity Tremendous. Um, Dave, thanks for doing this so much. You were the perfect guy to kick off this series with. Uh, when I think leadership, I think Dave Pullen. Um, I'm more of that generation. The, the 70s teams are, I'm a little too young for, although I remember them very well. Uh, but I remember your teams and the leadership uh, that you provided on those teams through some very difficult times. Thanks for doing this. Best of luck for you, to you in the future. And congratulations on another grandchild. And uh, hopefully you get to Philly to see, to see your grandchild soon. Yeah, thanks very much, guys. Always a pleasure. Special thanks to Dave Poulin for joining Bill Meltzer and I on this edition, the inaugural edition of Flyers Daily Flyers Hall of Fame Week. Some great stuff coming up again. Coming up on Friday's episode, Rod the Bod, Rod Brindamore. He'd, uh, you, you'll be real interested to hear his thoughts when he found out he was traded from the Flyers to Carolina. Uh, let's just say he was shocked and heartbroken. You'll hear his answer on that uh, coming up in Friday's episode. Everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of Flyers Daily, and we'll talk to you on Fridays with our guest, Rod Brindamore. Look what the cat rug in It's got the dress Though the color's gone That I gave my one true love on And no man Look what the wind blew home Never had this much stimulation 